The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability. I am your host, Mangala Kinesen. Today, I am grateful to have Professor Nancy Dowd here on the show as my guest. Thank you for being here. Professor Dowd is the David H. Levin Chair in Family Law at the University of Florida Levin College of Law and has been affiliated with the Feminism and Legal Theory Project for many years. She is the author of the groundbreaking work, Asking the Man Question, Masculinities Analysis and Feminist Theory, and has also contributed to the Feminism and Legal Theory Project collection, Exploring Masculinities, Feminist Legal Theory Reflections, edited by Martha L.A. Feynman and Michael Thompson. How did you first get involved with the Feminism and Legal Theory Project? Well, I got to know uh, Martha before thinking, before there was a Feminism and Legal Theory Project. Uh, I intersected with her early in my career when she was still at Wisconsin. And uh, I went to give a talk uh, out there. I very early in my career was um, uh, writing about maternity leave. So I was writing about, uh, and I was also connected to the uh, critical feminist uh, reading group in Boston, and uh, which was an incredibly active group. So because of that, uh, I had come across Martha's work and got connected to her fairly, um, as I said, early in my uh, academic career. And, and that connection uh, continued as she moved to um, uh, Columbia and then to Emory. So, uh, and in the course of time, uh, sometimes took a, a more active role than at others. Uh, she's worked with a lot of collaborators. So, um, so our relationship goes back um, a long time. So you were one of the contributors to the book, Exploring Masculinities, Feminist Legal Theory Reflections. Can you tell me a bit about how you got involved in that? Well, I would say that I was probably one of the first uh, feminist scholars to explore the question of masculinities and uh, wrote a book probably um, at the time, maybe maybe still, um, uh, one of the leading volumes in bringing masculinities theory into feminist theory into gender theory. Um, so uh, I think that um, uh, probably my work preceded this. So the book I wrote called The Man Question was published in uh, 2010. And uh, when when that came out, um, I also had written uh, an article and participated in a symposium in um, at Harvard uh, done that was organized by the um, Harvard Gender Journal, and then this volume um, was was uh, also then emerged out of that uh, point in time. So the piece that I wrote for this volume um, is is a um, distilled version of what I had done for the Harvard Symposium and in my earlier book. 
So I had uh, come to masculinities as a result of work I had done on single parent families. And when I, uh, so an earlier book on single parents, which you could see the connection from my very early work on uh, maternity leave. So in that progression, uh, looking at various aspects of the lives of women, of course, you end up also looking at, well, what are the men doing? You know, why is this so, there's this tremendous asymmetry. And when I was exploring the issue of uh, the uh, social context, the ecology of single parent families, the assumption is you're always talking about single mothers. But sometimes you are talking about single fathers who function like mothers as single parents. And so that was a very interesting piece of, of work to sort of puzzle over and look at and evaluate. And it um, much of the work that had been done about single fathers, and I don't mean, I mean single engaged fathers, not um, uh, the, the more common pattern in single parent families was um, mothers were doing uh, the work of parenting and uh, biological fathers were either very occasional or often not involved at all. But you did see a, a, a small group of very engaged fathers um, who were either co-partners or fully engaged as the primary parent. And, mo and many of the scholars who had written about those men uh, were connected to or had an exposure to uh, masculinities uh, scholarship. So that little thread <laughs> led me then to saying, well, all right, let me take a closer look at masculinities scholarship, which, which was then largely outside of law. Um, so that exploration led to my work on masculinities theory and then my engagement in this volume and, this, and the uh, conference that was a part of it. What were you doing before you came to masculinities theory and you studied single parents and parenthood? I started with looking at, um, I mean, my really my very early career was looking at um, maternity leave, then at parental leave, then at work family issues. So again, in that area, there was this tremendous um, gender asymmetry. The work family issues of women were entirely different from the work family issues of men. And predominantly, I looked at the work family issues of, um, of women. I mean, I was, I was coming from that perspective. And I think feminists generally were, were focused on the, wo the woman question, um, to, to try and put it succinctly. They were looking, they were, they were adding to a dominantly, um, male set of subjects, uh, dominantly male 
analysis of the, as if the issues that women are concerned with and their lives were, were really unattended. So feminist analysis um, uh, exposed and brought in and brought different perspective to the lives of women. And in that analysis, I would say largely men uh, had a sort of two-dimensional uh, uh, role. Uh, they were they were the the foil or the 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 uh, the, the different other from from uh, the position of women, and so so the position of men as assumed to be dominant, right? Assumed to be empowered, assumed to have uh, value and very undifferentiated, I think was uh, characteristic of, fe of feminist analysis, uh, mine included. Um, and, but, but many of the issues that, uh, particularly if you look at things like work family policy, it, it is an interaction, it is a dynamic. And so inevitably you are looking at men, you are looking at masculinity, you just you just didn't weren't had didn't have a good awareness that you were looking at it in a kind of simplistic way, so so um, there was lots and lots and lots that needed to be looked at about women, and I think probably some would have argued, yeah, okay, we'll get to men eventually, <laughs> but but there's so much that needs to be dealt with, analyzed, evaluated argued over, um, there, there was so, so, there's always been so much vitality within feminism and self-criticism. And so, I mean, there was so much going on. It was some people, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to the men, we'll get to the boys eventually. And, um, and, so, and some of that, frankly, was the reaction to um, this uh, critique or addition of masculinities. So it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Look, we've still got an awful lot to do with respect um, to women, as opposed to the argument of uh, that uh, this book makes, and that um, and that my word work made of this will add to feminist analysis, and and what's what's particularly had been left out was the ways in which men are subordinated. Uh, so it, you, you miss all that, and men are differentiated. Um, so uh, to me, uh, it's an eye-opening addition. And you know, you take something, for example, like the um, what's just happened in Atlanta, these horrific um, uh, murders that have occurred, uh, where we have rightfully focused on the victims. Um, but if we look at the perpetrator, a white male, both his whiteness and his masculinity are very much in play in, in I believe, in why this crime happened and how this connects to other additional broad patterns of uh, violence that have been directed against Asian American women and men over the past year and before. Can you tell me a little more about that from a masculinity theory perspective? I, I think when you 
likely look at the life course of this particular um, individual, um, you, you, you see, uh, again, ma masculinity, um, like, like the, you know, like womanhood is a construction, right? It's not a biological given and very much, um, one, one of the core, um, uh, teachings of masculinity theory is that the hierarchy between men um, or among men, I should say, is as critical or more critical than the hierarchy between men and women. So the, the sustaining of hierarchy is, is, is in play all the time. So the relationship of this man to other men and to uh, notions of masculinity, um, and then its intersection from, from what I have read so far, so this is on minimal facts, of a construction of masculinity um, strongly influenced by religion um, uh, that, that, in other words, some idea of who is a good man, and then uh, uh, you have, and then sex is is in here as well, differently constructed for men than it is for women. So, um, and the the uh, the stereotypes created about Asian Americans, um, and again, those stereotypes are both raced and gendered. So the, the gender piece of it says, what, what's, again, how, what's the masculine gaze at, this, at women and at these particular women and the assumptions about them? Um, and probably also there's a piece here of just violence in general, whatever, whatever um, uh, is going on in this person's head that their solution is to pick up a gun and kill people, to go after them and kill them, is I think very much a masculine construction. And if we look, for example, at who commits gun violence, it's overwhelmingly male. So there's a lot in here. Uh, one, one of the other, um, uh, aspects of masculinity's um, study is the notion that men, although powerful, feel powerless. So how does someone who is powerless um, try to become powerful, uh, sex and violence? So it, it's, it's an insight. Um, I think it's also that the source of uh, anti-Asian American rhetoric uh, has come from a male leader. Well, leader, I use that um, term because of the office that that person held, not because the person is actually a leader. But the, the um, so all of that, I think, is part of the way that the masculinity 
is expressed and is a constant effort to, um, to claim the highest possible place in the hierarchy of men and assume that that hierarchy is always dominant over all women. And then of course, we have our hierarchy of women as well. So there's, in terms of the, and, and again, if you, um, I'll, I'll give you another example of this. If you look at January 6th, who was there? Overwhelmingly men, white men, um, and their manner of expression was the vi their violence over other men. Um, it, it was masculinity on steroids was part of, of that dynamic in addition to other things. But again, the expression was uh, very much a masculinity expression. And that doesn't mean that all, you know, I, I'm not in any way trying to stereotype all men, but um, somehow if we imagine the, the January 6th crowd, or if you try to reverse uh, the genders, reverse gender and race in Atlanta or on January 6th, and, and it almost doesn't compute right? It almost doesn't compute, which says something about the source of hierarchy, domination, um, violence. Let's switch gears a little bit to talking about the purpose of the collection. When this collection was being put together, sort of what, what was the purpose of it and what was it trying to add to the field of legal theory, of feminist legal theory in particular? Um, I think this, again, I would say this was part of this early wave of, of bringing masculinities theory in. If I, if I were looking for a parallel, I, was, I would say that there was a very strong critique of feminism as being racially essentialist um, and and that critique that and self-critique um, enormously I think changed um, feminist theory in a, in a in a positive way I think this was another um, part of that oh okay all right well may it will it will benefit it will expand it will add complexity it will we won't have missed something right? Um, to bring masculinity's um, uh, theory, uh, which was largely non-law. So you're bringing in pieces from uh, dominantly sociology and psychology into law, um, into legal um, feminist analysis and, and bringing two very... Um, different approaches, trying to bring them together to see if they could talk to each other, if you will, right? Um, and so I think this collection was an incredible, um, incredibly diverse in terms of, okay, well, where would, 
where would the implications of this be? Oh my gosh, it's it's in education, it's in employment, it's in and there's there's intersections. One of the other strong pieces of masculinities was that masculinities analysis early on differentiated among men. So you if you if you asked a, a man question, you know, you'd also be asking, is this man or is this group of men typical of all men or are there differences here in the, in the way that different groups of men uh, would, would uh, react or act or um, where their position would be. So I think this collection very much is a reflection of, of exactly the point of how feminist theory could benefit from this infusion was demonstrated in this volume. So it, it, it um, very much is typical and um, emblematic of the feminist legal theory project of, uh, uh, and of Martha Feynman's leadership is always to ask new questions, ask difficult questions, ask uncomfortable questions, because those are often the questions that moves, that moves things forward. So I think this was a very um, instrumental, um, challenging, uh, broad-ranging. It was. It's. It's one of those. If you're not going to read anything else, and you just want to get one volume, um, other than my book, of course, um, it, it, read this volume because it gives it. It. it it's eye-opening. I think. What were your experiences with the Feminism and Legal Theory Project like? For me, they, the workshops are a model, a just uh, an, an incredibly successful model of what true intellectual engagement can be. So when, when I have been in the position um, in my career to be the person who's, who's running a, a conference. I almost always in my head am, am aiming for what I think of as the Martha model <laughs> because of a couple of things, maybe three in particular. One is that the purpose of the, the, the setup, if you will, is set up um, to have dialogue. Uh, and, and so rather than the talking head at the front of the room who dispenses their paper, and, and then there's a tiny amount of time left for the engagement with the audience, um, the, the goal is engagement with the audience and the audience is expected to have read the paper and uh, and it's about a rich dialogue, um, respectful challenge, um, differences of opinion. Uh, uh, it's it's always uh, the most interesting stew, intellectual stew. Uh, are is is that model? So that's one piece. Um, a second piece is um, one of the most incredible intellects in the room, who is running the the conference um, Martha Feynman 
is uh, it often plays the role of directing everybody else, but not of dominating the conversation and sometimes even being quite caught quiet and you want to know what Martha's thinking. Um, and to me, that's a wonderful model of, of engagement and support of the work of others instead of uh, focusing on, on, um, on herself. And that selflessness, I think, um, has, is, is, a, is a wonderful uh, motto. And then the, the third thing I would say is, well, maybe three isn't enough, um, is that uh, there is enormous support for young scholars and of then encouraging more senior folks to be supportive. Um, and so a, a wonderful valuing of everyone without hierarchy. Uh, so that's, uh, and, and if, then if I was going to add a fourth, I guess it would be, uh, they are often interdis interdisciplinary and uh, comparative as well. So crossing um, geography too. So they're, they're to me, um, very much the gold standard. Uh, of how you of of engagement, um, particularly because of the concept of an uncomfortable conversation. That it isn't all preaching to the choir. It's about about engaging with the places where we have the most dramatic disagreements and trying to listen and and see where there are bridges. So I'm a I'm a huge fan, as you can tell. And um, and and have have uh, participated and engaged with the project uh, quite a bit over the years, and and always it's always like just a tremendously exciting, um, rich uh, experience. We're almost out of time, so I've just got a couple more questions for you. Okay. And first, and this is going back to what you were talking about earlier. How did exploring masculinities actually change the field of feminist legal theory? I think it it has changed it in terms of I would hope uh, following Zamari Matsuda many 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 years ago. Uh, said it's always important to ask the other question. And she um, raised that in terms of, uh, so, so that idea is, so if you, if you look at something and you say, this is about race, what's going on in X situation? No, this is about race. And then you say, well, let's ask, is there anything else going on here? Is there something about gender going on here? Is there something about class going on here? Ask the other question. So I think that be because it'll tell you more, it'll inform you more, it'll help you solve the problem better. It'll get you to um, uh, a, a, different, a different place, right? So if that's so, 
then the most important thing that masculinities analysis brought to feminist analysis is saying, ask the other question. If you think this is all about women, what about men? What about boys? What about what, what's, what, what else is, is the same dynamic going on? Is a different dynamic going on? Ask the man question and ask also, uh, are there differences among men? So I think it's added that and um, leads and also reinforces um, uh, the importance of, of being anti-essentialist that uh, just as not all men are the same, uh, so too, not all women are the same. Um, so I think it's, it's um, enormously benefited feminist theory. And finally, what would you like listeners to remember from our interview today or to take away from it? I hope they will ask the other question, whether it's the man question or any other aspect of identity. So, for example, I'll give you the example of George Floyd. We think, I think most people would say that's about race. The George Floyd case, all of that is about race. Um, and certainly it is. But it was absolutely about masculinity as well. The assertion of one man's power over another man. Done in a way expressive of manhood. Um, so, so that would, so I would say, ask the man question um, and ask the boy question because uh, one, of the, one of the inspirations for my work on masculinities was I was, I was doing that work as I was raising a son and was intensely aware as a result of my look at masculinities how distinctly different the challenge is to raise a boy from raising a girl. And I have a son who's now in his late 20s, who uh, I consider him a great success story of, of having survived the pressure uh, to be a particular kind of man, to grow up instead to be a different kind of man. And I hope, that, and I have told him often that he was a source of inspiration um, for, the, for my work on masculinity and also that he benefited <laughs> because I think I... Uh, had a great awareness of how much pressure there was for him to be a particular way, particularly about his emotions. So um, it, it would be uh, to also take away an understanding of the different gender dynamic that men function within um, 
as compared to women. Well, thank you so much for being here, Professor Dowd. It's been wonderful to hear from you. Yeah, it's been great talking with you. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Exploring Masculinities, Feminist Legal Theory Reflections will be linked to in the description of the episode on SoundCloud. Thanks for tuning in.